0: When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there wouldn't have been a damn thing I could
1: have done about it.
2: This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me.
1: what are you reporting? Jesus Christ, you
2: better... Sheriff, see up. Somebody out here. What's going on now, sir?
3: That son of a bitch is about six foot nine. I don't
2: know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right
3: at him. Uh oh. Welcome to Bigfoot Hotspot Radio. Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm your host, Wes, along with my brother, Woody, and researcher, author, and friend, William Jeffing. Let's start the show. This past weekend, Woody and I attended an informal gathering of Bigfooters brought together by Todd Ness in the Oregon Coast Range Mountains. The gathering has become known as Beachfoot over the years. A small affair of good friends coming together to talk about Sasquatch. We arrive on Thursday and run into several notable people.
2: My name is John Bindernogel. I'm a professional wildlife biologist.
3: And I thought it would be a good opportunity to sit down with some of these folks to find out what inspired them what drives them in this topic, and how they
2: got involved in this topic. And I'm very interested in the Sasquatch or Bigfoot, and especially why it is a scientifically taboo subject. Shane
3: Corson from Cryptologic Radio, Woody, and myself sat down with Dr.
2: John Bender-Nagel. Well, my fascination actually starts with this whole thing about uh, scientific disengagement. Uh, well, not, not disengagement, because it was, it was scientists have never been engaged. It's not that they've abandoned this subject. It's that it's been closed from the beginning. And the beginning for me was as a third-year university student in, in biology courses, when I raised the subject, uh, 1963, I raised an, a report from Argosy magazine of a so-called ape man being observed in British Columbia. And I was laughed at professor said oh no no, we we can't talk about that you know and we went back to moose deer elk you know this was this was taboo even then and I thought my goodness you know and you know what was I about 22 years old still very idealistic thinking about the scientific ideals of openness and every subject is worth considering at least apparently not so of course, there was very little information in 1963, and then, but then a few years later, John Green's books started coming out, the late 60s, early 70s. And I started reading them. And there was another thing that happened to me right around then, 1973, I was working in the Serengeti National Park with a, at, at the Serengeti Institute with other international scientists, and I raised the subject of the North American Sasquatch. And there was no laughter, no ridicule, no kidding, Everyone's saying, well, now, John, if I were you, going back to Canada, I'd be looking specifically at food habits, and I think that would be the way to really get you to, you know, for studying this thing in a, in a good way. So That was really helpful to me, to know that some scientists could take it seriously. But what, what happened then was that I went back to Canada, and we moved out to BC then, largely so that I could start uh, Sasquatch studies. That was 1975. And, of course, I, I did not mention it. I had realized that this is a subject that, as a new biologist in British Columbia, one did not raise. And so I quietly studied it on my own. But there was this, I felt strange that here I was studying this interesting large mammal that my colleague did not want to hear about. And then, in 1988, my wife and I found these really great fresh tracks while on a, a hike with the school group. So following that, I had this couple of really nice plaster track casks on my desk. And I'm still thinking, why is no one doing anything with this? And I thought, John, you better pick up the pace here. Still being quiet about it.
3: Why do you think the scientific community wants nothing to do with it?
2: Well, the, the, this question has intrigued me for a long time. Why is it scientifically taboo? And uh, and I that's what I dealt with in the second book. Because in the first book, I talked about the anatomy, behavior, and some of the ecology of the Sasquatch, and expected some scientific dialogue and back and forth. And it, it was simply ignored. It's not that people were down on it or or, or argued about it. They simply dismissed it. And so th- then I then I realized, okay, John you've been discussing the anatomy and behavior of a a North American mammal not yet discovered, or not yet, or or the way I sometimes put it, whose discovery has not yet been acknowledged by the scientific community. So that got me into the discovery process. And I came to realize, you know, we are making this enormous discovery claim. And it's not just an unlikely thing that there's this seven-foot, tall, eight hundred pound, upright large mammal in North America. It's perceived as a far fetched claim. And even even in the history of medicine, some claims have been dismissed, you know, there's no theoretical basis or it's too too large a leap from where people are now. So so I you know, I, I, I'm not saying I excuse my scientific colleagues, but I under I understand that that it's a very, a very large claim, like I say, an enormous claim. And I think some investigators fail to recognize just how enormous the claim is, and maybe treat it a little too trivially as a subject of entertainment, as a, a weekend warrior sort of activity. And so I, you know, not that I'm blaming them. I, I'm always I always uh, trying to bend over backward to say this is the responsibility of, of scientists, relevant scientists who have ignored it. Amateur investigators have filled in that vacuum. And, and most are doing a very good job, you know, well disciplined, very dedicated. Others less so. Okay, like like in any group. But that's the way it's going. So what this will be when when the discovery claim is finally acknowledged is a great victory for citizen scientists, you know, amateur investigators, amateur in the sense of like like the British sense of amateurs, like Darwin was, sort of lovers of science, you know, not not necessarily not amateur in a negative way at all, but just just not credential, you know, and. Credentials. I keep coming back to this. There's the circularity. Creden- credentialed scientists won't touch this thing, or in general, with, with a few exceptions.
3: Dr. Bindernagel has written two books. Both books can be found on Amazon. Back in 1998, he wrote North America's Great Ape, the Sasquatch, and Dr. Bender Nagel's newest book, The Discovery of the Sasquatch.
2: Oh, well, thank you for referring to it as a new book. It came out at the end of uh, 2011. I I still think of it as a new book. It took seven years, and I'm still sort of recovering from that (laughs) that research and writing process. But, uh, that's when I got into this, this, uh, this whole idea of, okay, first of all, I had to review the evidence again because no, scientists did not read the first book. So I felt I had to go back and cover some of that ground again. And then I got into this whole idea of scientific resistance to certain discoveries, such as the Sasquatch and some of these medical discoveries that also encountered resistance. But in, in the medical discoveries, it was usually a delay of maybe 10 years, sometimes 20 years between when the discovery was first claimed until it was finally accepted and of course eventually became sort of just just obvious. But in the case of the Sasquatch, we've been going for over a century. There are, you know, 100-year-old accounts, some of them really quite detailed, describing the Sasquatch. And you know, in addition to, you know, the 40-year-old accounts and, you know, the, the first track cast in, gee, 1941, that's over 50 years now and, you know, we still haven't accepted track cast as evidence for the Sasquatch as a track-leaving mammal. And, and, of course, there's been the problem of hoaxes. And soon as there's hoax claims, even if they're very poor, poorly substantiated, scientists flee from the subject. They just avoid it, because they're not maybe conversant enough with the evidence to say this is a hoax, this is real. They're afraid of say, you know treating a hoax seriously and someone saying, ah, gotcha, you know. So there's that. Well, and you know, scientists are very reputation conscious, very conservative, and mostly this is fine, or at least okay, but my feeling with the Sasquatch is that it's not okay because there's so much evidence and so many sincere, I won't call them proponents, but eyewitnesses who have come forward and people have come forward saying, you know, you don't need to know my name, you just need to look at, you know, this track cast I made and tell me what you think.
3: The night before, Dr. Benernagel gave a speech on all of the good evidence that's being collected now. He talked a little bit about collecting a type specimen. I asked Dr. Benternagel, what would be the impact if someone were to shoot a Sasquatch and bring one in? What impact would that have
2: on the scientific community? Well, the body would be the type specimen, which is what, you know, my scientific cause claim is necessary. They're unwilling to consider or scrutinize the available evidence, which is something that kind of bothers me. I feel we could at least be discussing this evidence without a type specimen. They're insisting on a type specimen. Okay, say that that became available. Okay, suddenly the Sasquatch goes from uncatalogued, uh, undiscovered, to being discovered. And and, well, what what interests me then is is the questions that will be raised because scientists will seem surprised, Mm -hmm. and people are going to say, "Why are scientists surprised?" You know, have they, how have they been missing this? You know, eight hundred pound large mammal for must have been here for a long time, if not forever. And that'll be interesting and and then they'll you know there'll be questions about where was the scientific dialogue leading up to this you know was it being discussed in the literature and the answer is no, no and no you know it, it, it's been ignored by, by the scientific community and suddenly scientists can no longer ignore it well this is the way I see things unfolding. my, my interest is in the various scientific disciplines who either could have been scrutinizing this evidence or should have been paying attention to this evidence uh physical anthropologists uh human evolutionists certainly my colleagues biologists zoologists mammalogists suddenly this this mammal is now available for study and it's got to be fitted in you know and so you know it's obviously a primate and is it more human-like or more ape-like that'll be you know a a big so there'll be a you know a It'll be a mine minefield of 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 research, you know, of, of sort of evidence for for research, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly uh, scientists respond, you know, to, to a type specimen. How they react? I'll be. I hope I'm still around to see this. Yeah, i <laughs> would be very curious.
3: What keeps you going?
2: Well, it it, it probably sounds arrogant, but I, I keep doing this because I I feel like well I. I, should I say I know I'm right? I mean, as scientists, we're we're called to reserve a certain percentage of skepticism, of doubt, and, and, and which I do about about point one percent. You know th- that all this evidence is fake, hoax, or uh, the sightings are misidentified bears or humans in costumes. You know, uh, I guess I have to reserve that small amount. But I mean, after. Forty years, and you know, especially after a weekend here at, at, at this Beachfoot meeting and hearing all these accounts and all these detailed descriptions and seeing some of these amazing track casts that other people of the tracks that people have cast, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, because because I do second guess myself sometimes. I do say, John, you know, maybe all these scientific gatekeepers who won't let your scientific paper be included at a scientific conference, maybe they're right. And. I, I don't think so, you know, but I, it's very affirming to me and uh, necessary for me to hear other other accounts and see all this other evidence, so it keeps me, well, what keeps me going is, is situations, events like this, when I see, my goodness, people have moved ahead so much further than than even I was aware of. That's very, very encouraging to know.
3: talked to Dr. John Benternichel about the changing landscape in the Bigfoot community. We've interviewed cops, lawyers, doctors, military personnel, people of profession that have come out and shared their stories with us. Ten, fifteen years ago, you didn't see a whole lot of that going on. Now there's groups out there who have the main goal of shooting a Sasquatch, bringing in a type specimen.
2: Well, this is an interesting situation because, you know, I'm, I guess I'd call, I'm 73 years old. I graduated in 1964 with my first degree. And uh, I guess I'm what you'd call an old school biologist. And in the old days, one collected a type specimen. It was no big thing. And I was talking to an ornithologist here, you know. They would record bird calls in Peru and then they'd go and collect the specimen, prepare it and put it in the museum. We did that with mammals. We did it with birds. We did it with amphibians and, you know, it just it was just the norm. But now we've come to this different age, you know, and and we're dealing with a primate here, and, and you know, something very, there's kinship involved, very, some, very, for some people, very, very close, and the whole the idea of actually collect, you know, and and it's this catch-22 situation. Scientists are insisting on a type specimen, but but see, Grover Krantz took a position. He said we need to collect one, you know, collect being a euphemism for shooting one or whatever, euthanizing one. And once we have one type specimen, that we get protection for all the rest. He was heavily criticized for that. That that's, was not an acceptable position to take. So, we're in this dilemma. They insist on a type specimen, but we're not to collect one. They won't exist. Most of my colleagues are unwilling to examine the existing evidence, some of which I think is pretty conclusive. Usually I have a, a plaster cast with me here, and I this is hard evidence, you know, and a bit of a joke but <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. It, but, but it it, it is it, yeah, it treated as physical evidence, uh, Jeff Melvin would, would say no it's it's actually trace evidence in the sense that it's it's a trace or track left by the animal, but so many people misinterpret trace as minor it's not minor at all for me it, it's the main form, so you know, as I showed last night my, I'm working with with remote cameras now I want to get a system in place that in case someone says to me. Hey, I've had a sasquatch coming onto my land here for you know a year or something mm-hmm. like that. You you should come out here because they come every year in November or something, you know. And then I would have a, a a a photographing system in place for monitoring that sort of thing, and that's what I'm working on. So maybe I'm naive, but I think that could happen, you know. And I that I know that people in some areas I'm hearing that here that people are having you know now there's people with three and four sightings in their in a relatively young lifetime. Gee, about. Twenty years ago, if someone had two or three sightings, oh, people were very skeptical. No, no, very unlikely you'd ever have one more than one sighting in your lifetime. Well, that's changed significantly. So I got
3: one on a picture on a game cam. I'm going to send it to Shane. I should send it to you too. Oh, Lady sent it to me and Woody. Oh. So, what do you guys think this is? And it's walking away. It looks like the Patterson film. It looks like it's walking away. Oh and my and goodness. It's it still clipped, but it's still clip. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's good. We, you can see all the calf muscles and all Oh that
1: my goodness.
3: The back muscles. And then the sun's coming in from different angles of the tree and you can see it gl- glisten off of the, um, I mean, it would have been almost impossible <laughs> to photoshop. <laughs> yeah. Almost yeah. impossible to photoshop. But yeah. You can see it, the light hitting like a certain part of its back and then you can see it hitting its butt, hitting its legs. And the sun's coming in, and you can really get a good.
2: Wow, you see, I, th- I think in that way things are changing. You know what my scientific colleagues, now, now Jeff Meldon, who's much more in academia than I am, he says, no, we do have a lot of colleagues out there. They're simply being quiet. You know, they're, they're simply waiting. They're not saying yes, no. They're, they're simply being they're kind of. They have an undisclosed interest, almost, you know, almost mm-hmm. a closet I interest. Mean. And he's finding some of his colleagues more out. More outgoing, more more open. I'm, I haven't found that in British Columbia, but then we seem to be super conservative compared to Americans. But that's maybe that's a cultural thing. But uh, yeah, I, I think now uh, a film like the Patter- Patterson Gimlin film, if that would happen again, whoa, I think that would really change things. that oh, gee, here it is again. It would increase the credibility of the first one, which has so commonly commonly been dismissed as a hoax. I mean, this is an objection of some of my colleagues with all these game cams out. How come no sasquatches? Well, sasquatches are, we're talking primates here, very intelligent. Oh.
1: And as I said before, it's like a needle in a haystack a lot of times. They-
2: That's right. People think, oh, thousands of game cams out. Well, how, how what area are we covering? You know, a small, small, small percentage of habitat. Yeah.
3: The night before Dr. Binternagel gave a presentation and shared with the group his videos and his pictures from his game cams and plot watchers. The fascinating part about looking at his still images and his video was that every wild animal out there was more than aware of his game cams. Yeah, even the elk you showed in that game cam video last yes. night, even the elk knew the camera was there.
4: Yes. You yes. An elk yes. known to be real bright. Yes. But, yes. I mean,
2: yeah, it didn't necessarily avoid it, but it, yeah. it was certainly curious about it. And and maybe some there was some discomfort. He yeah. definitely
1: knew it was there. Yeah, he oh, yeah. definitely knew yeah. it was there. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. came right up to the camera, looked directly at it. Yeah, I, I sniff, that sniff. Was, yeah, I, yeah. He <laughs> yeah. did yeah. a little sniff dust, yeah. it was kind of funny because you know we talked to a lot of people on shows about that, and they say the same thing about the whole game cams. They probably avoid them. They know that they're there. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, there's no way to prove it, but uh, no, you know. No. Obviously, if an elk knows it's there, there's yeah, something yeah. with a little higher intelligence
2: than an elk. Yeah, it not only knows it's there, but decides I'm going to go around the back of the right. tree or whatever, or I'm going to rip the thing off, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really
1: enjoyed that presentation you gave last that night. Was that was awesome. That was really, yeah. Good. Well, really good. Yeah,
2: well, uh, thank you. Well, that other camera, see, I'm quite keen on that. I was put onto that by William Van Genis, the, the pot watcher. Uh, just uh time-lapse photography from high in a tree, just clicking away. Kind of like the bear, you should come down. Yeah, exactly. No, no detection involved. Yeah. There's no interaction between, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, it, it'll click away there all week and there'll be nothing, you know? And then, yeah, maybe a bear, maybe a bird will fly by and it'll get, stop it, yeah.
1: And I think that was kind of good, too. I, I mean, I haven't done a whole lot of, uh, you know, put cameras out on game trails, but one thing I, I that kind of stuck with me last night, you showed... Like with that bear, you had a camera coming in where the bear came yeah. in, and then, and then and then the way it, it was camera placement was really key. Yeah, too, back to back because you just covered about 300 yards with two cameras. Oh, that's right, and that's you've got right. you had full detail of something coming in, and you saw. I mean, it was only for a split second. You didn't see where it was out, and you saw it but, leaving going the other direction. Yeah. So uh,
2: no, I know. I think
1: uh, a lot of people that it clicked with me is like, "Wow, you know, I was smart the way the camera you set the camera well, up." Well, so.
2: that was one of the learning yeah. things for yeah. me uh, working with cameras. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's another tool, you know. And you know, people are using drones now, but for a drone, you you really need an area where you're pretty sure there's something there, and mm-hmm. you've only got about twenty minutes of battery power or something. But hope to see you next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll read up my notes. I think, gee, I can't mm-hmm. afford not to come. You know, that's what mm-hmm. I thought. I, but by well, yesterday, my goodness, mm-hmm. I wouldn't like to have missed. I would. I would hate to have missed yeah. it. But I yeah. wouldn't have known what I was missing, of course. <laughs> but I mean, what? What that could should.
1: even be worse, though? Not knowing, <laughs> it, 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 well, yeah, but well, what know? a
2: shot in the eye. Well, I'm already thinking of people who should have been here. You know, the guys yeah. I'm working with up there, the investigators, are, uh, and also, of course, my scientific colleagues, mm-hmm. who can say, "Okay, I don't, I don't really accept that interpretation." Mm-hmm. But I mean, but there, there, there's the guys plaster cast, well, and, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 I think it's so important to create to to well, what's happened here? An atmosphere has been created where people can speak freely, share experiences. No one's saying...
1: It can build friendships.
2: Uh, that too, yeah. And no one's saying, well, the Sasquatch, if it exists, uh, lo- seems to look like... There's none of this if it exists of People yeah. here who've seen them... I mean, it's basically, they have a problem, and this is something I'm quite... You say what keeps me going.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I want to affirm the... You know, you, you can't quite dine out on, on a... If you saw a grizzly bear, you'd say, oh, right on, you know, mm-hmm. you know. People aren't saying... Well, where I'm comfortable... They're not saying right on for Sasquatch. They're saying, oh... Are you sure? Well, I doubt. I must have it. Must have been a bear on its hind leg. Or, you know. I'll go right. on. And and, and Bill, just some alternative explanation.
3: Well, thank you, John. It was a pleasure.
2: Oh, thank you so More much. You know. my, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, John, so okay. much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, That's a pleasure. Thank you for your yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Well, no, so I'm much. sort of kept you waiting.
1: <laughs> Sorry to keep you so long. Oh and, no 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 one. Well.
3: As Shane Corson. Woody and I got up from the interview, I couldn't help but think, here's a 77-year-old man that has the energy of a 20-year-old. The night before, I ran into Peter Byrne. Peter Byrne has led a life most of us can only dream about. Oil businessman and adventurer Tom Slick first contacted Peter Byrne and contracted him to search for the Yeti. I told Peter he was huge on YouTube. His response? What's YouTube? My response? Google
4: it. When I was very young, my my dad used to tell me stories about the Yeti, the abominable snowman. So I've always had an interest. And then um, after World War II, I found myself living up in North India. So I started going in the Himalayas small expeditions, two men, three men, and I did three of those. And through those in 1956, I was contacted by Tom Slick. He said that uh, he wanted to project an expedition, a Yeti expedition, into the Himalaya. So we met in New Delhi and uh, had some long talks. And in 57, I Took the first American Yeti expedition in there, and we spent three years. We came down at Christmas each year. We spent 36 months up there. At the end of 36 months, was the end of 1959, uh, we came back down to Kathmandu, and there were lots of cables, and the cable from Tom. I uh, said, You've been up there long enough. I'd like you to come to the States and look for the American Yeti. So we looked at this cable, and we laughed. So I came over to the States in early 60. Um, went to Texas, sat down with Tom, and looked at uh, maps of the Pacific Northwest, which is three times the size of the Nepal Himalaya, the uh-huh. Northwest there vast. So I was intrigued. So went up to Willow Creek, set up a base there, and ran his project for two and a half years until he died in October sixty two. when it came to an end. That's how I started. That's how I got into it. Starting with the Yeti and then coming into the Bigfoot thing ran a big project in the 90s for another man a couple of smaller projects and right now I'm sort of freelancing with a small group out on the coast and we're putting cameras out it's a very small effort we have six cameras in an area we move them here and there we're getting the usual thing, photographs of bear, elk, mountain owl that's all
3: I asked Peter about evidence that he had found while searching for the Yeti and I had to hear the story about the Yeti hand that was taken from the monk temple.
4: We found a number of things. Uh, we saw footprints twice. When Tom Sleeve was with me, we broke up into separate parties. And he found footprints, and I found footprints. And we photographed those. We made some casts. And then later on, we found this mummified hand in, one of the, in a temple there. We got that back to London. So some scientists there have examined it. There's no DNA in those days, of course. Wasn't heard of. It disappeared then for many, many years. It was found last year by an enterprising young BBC reporter. And it's been DNA'd. And it's a human hand. It's not a Yeti hand. It's just the size of my hand. uh, But this nail was very big. It was almost hooked on the finger here. Those are the only finds we made. We We never saw one. Uh, we talked to people who'd seen one, mostly older people in those days, old men, old women, they said they'd seen one. In the time we were there, though, in the Himalayas, 57, 58, 59, those three years, um, there, were, there were no sightings, and um, just two sets of footprints wow. that we found in early 57. And then since then, make a long story short, I've been out in Nepal every year for the last 30, 40 years. Working in wildlife conservation projects, and I always talk to Sherpas. I always talk to Tibetans when I meet them. You know, anyone seen a Yeti? Anyone seen anything? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, for maybe twenty-five years, no sign of any kind. So, huh. no footprints, no sightings.
3: That's amazing about the hand. I didn't know the hand was found.
4: Yes. Well, um, it wasn't the hand. It was just. It was just a finger. I took a finger off the hand. That's right. Yeah. I um, met with the Namas there. I was camping there, and there was a group of these custodians, these elderly men, and they were all chatting in Tibetan. And I heard one of them speaking Nepalese, which I speak. So I went up and said, you know, are you speaking Nepalese? And he said, yes, I was a soldier in the British Army years ago in a a Nepalese regiment, a Gurkha regiment. Got talking to him. He said, what are you doing here? I said, looking for the Yeti. He said, well, there's a hand up in the temple there. Do you want to see it? So so I sent communications back to Slick, back to London. They said, try try and get the hand or at least get part of it. So I flew to London, um, picked up a human hand, flew back, hiked back, took the finger off the supposed Yeti hand and replaced it with this human finger. I drilled it and wired it and so on. Painted it with iodine to make it look dark brown and black like the other one. It's, it's, it was there until recently, maybe two years ago. It was stolen. It's been stolen, I'm afraid. So, well, so that's the story of the hand. That's amazing. Uh-huh. I've never so, heard that story. Uh, I mean, I knew about the hand, but... Um, we had to get the hand, the finger, out of the pole. So we exchanged cables in code. And we had to send a runner down to the Indian border, to where there's a telegraph station. To cables and code, back and forth, Tom Slick. And he said, um, get the finger to um, Calcutta. There'll be a man called Stewart at the Grand Hotel in Calcutta a month from now. So I walked down across the hall, went to Calcutta, go to the hotel, check in. And they say he's up in room 101. So I go up and it's Jimmy Stewart and his wife, Gloria, the actor. So I spent a couple of days there. And they took the hand to London. Not the hand, the finger. Um, the trouble is getting it out through Indian customs. In those days, customs checked you coming in and checked you going out. Yeah. So um, Gloria put it in her lingerie case and locked it up. So they arrive at London Airport, they get all their baggage, and the lingerie case is missing. So they check into the Dorchester Hotel in London, and two days later, the the uh, concierge calls them and says, it's a customs man here with a case for you. So Jimmy says, send him up. So this young customs man comes up to the room with the laundry case and says, is this yours? And Gloria said, yes, it's mine. Thank you very much. So he sits down, has a cup of tea. And then he's leaving and Lord Gloria says, I see it's still locked. And he said, uh, British customs official would never open a lady's laundry case. So. <laughs>
3: that's awesome. <laughs> so that's how we got the finger
4: there. So, and right now, I don't know who has it right now. Anyway, it was found. And, uh, recent exam as you know probably. Yeah. Wow, it's that's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah, I know you've taken thousands,
3: probably hundreds of thousands of reports at this point. Do you? What do you think that Sasquatch is? And, and there's no right or wrong answer. Has oh it. no,
4: you know, I, you know, the answer is I don't know any more than anybody else. I like the way it walks. It walks upright. Nothing else walks upright on the face of the earth, as you know, except us. Um, I like the fact that it has white to the eyes, which we have, nothing else has. So there's possibility of it being a a hominid, uh, a man that still has his hair. Possibility, but uh, after all these years, we know almost nothing. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it eats. We don't know how it sleeps. We don't know if it makes fire. We don't know if it makes structures. We know almost nothing. This is my opinion. Know almost nothing.
3: Peter Byrne, a man who spent his whole life searching for the Yeti and for the Sasquatch. We asked Peter if this mystery will be solved in our lifetime.
4: I hope so. I hope so. Before I pass on, And the answer is the cause of body, physical remains. And um, as you know, the Northwest has an incredible disposal system of garbage, uh, the carrion eaters, bears, coyotes, porcupines, crows, ravens. Something does, it disappears. It's eaten. Bear will pick up the scent of a decaying carcass half a mile away easily if the wind is right. Home in and eat everything. Skull, everything. Bone, leg bones, everything. So, so um, yeah. And science demands that's what science demands. Not not video footage, not screams, <laughs> not recording. It, science demands a body on the table. So if if could get that, or even get something, get a skull. So that may, that may happen, yes, that I may I think happen. all three of us
1: probably will agree with you on mm, that. Yes. That. So eventually, it's will to come down to you know, that physical body the
4: Yes. I'm surprised there isn't more footage. Everyone has a camera.
1: Yeah.
4: And here we have the passing given footage. After all these years, that's all there is. Everything else is blurs and lights and shadows and everything. There isn't one decent still picture it that I have seen. Maybe there is some I have seen nothing, absolutely nothing. I've seen no footage. The Olympic project people bought sixty cameras out there. Over the course of what, five, six, seven years now? Probably yeah. Now, yeah. It's amazing we don't have anything. Amazing.
1: A lot of inconclusive, but you know yeah. it's really a needle in a haystack. you know, sometimes oh, yeah. in these areas.
4: It's a vast area. You know, the whole area is vast. And how many are there? And that's something nobody knows. People said 10,000 at least, five hundred, two. 2. Nobody knows. I and my associates are a little bit worried at the, the decrease in reports, in credible reports, in footprint finds and in sightings. The last one I have is um, January 2007. That's the last credible sighting that I know of. By this I've met the person, sat down, gone to the site, gone back to the site again, and I believe the guy. I believe that he actually truly did see one. It's where we have our cameras right now, our little camera effort. But otherwise, uh, there's lots of reports. But, but, you know, are they credible? Not to me, they're not. Uh, no. Lots of stuff. So.
1: Now, Peter, you mentioned the coast, and you don't have to mention the area, obviously, hmm. but um, beside that encounter, hmm. uh, that you, you, went, you interviewed the witness, uh, hmm. is the coast anything special to you as far as
4: Researching or, or? Yeah, it is, especially in that um, um, I don't, don't have a big project. I can't spread out. I'm, I live in Pacific City. So I concentrate my efforts, Few as they are, in the general area, 50 miles north, 50 miles south. And I have six sightings since 19... S- s- over the last 22 or 23 years, I have six credible sightings for the coast where I've interviewed the people. And then one or two old ones back in the 30s, but the people, of course, are gone. Mine is a very it's a personal project, very small. And I think right now, if I would, even if I was offered money for a big project, I don't think I'd do it. I don't have the energy I used to have. So, so we're content with that. And we use geo-time patterns, and we put our cameras in places um, where there's been a credible sighting at the time of the sighting, the months. So July, area X. We put our cameras there in August, Area B, so and that's what we do. That's the term I use, G-O time, and that's what we work on. Follow-up on reports. We hear someone's seen one. I have to talk to a woman now. She so says she saw one 25 years ago near Corbett in the, in the Columbia River Gorge. I have to meet her next week have a chat with her. So. And uh, the questionnaire, write it all down. And the patterns are interesting. I believe that they relate to food. Um, the need for food, which is the prime need need of every creature on the face of the earth from from a mouse to an elephant. food we need food we go to Safeway. Animals need food, they've got to go looking for it and it, these creatures its descriptions are real they're big they need a lot of food. they have to eat every day, quite a lot and they probably and that's probably what has them wherever they are at any time is, is food, the availability of food in that place. What do you, how do you determine if someone's credible or not? You do your best. I have a questionnaire. You no, know, you say, have you seen one before? Well, yeah, this is my tenth sighting. Right there, goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm with you now. So, you do your best, you sit down with the person, and, um, have a relaxed talk, and fill in the questionnaire, and then make an assessment. I interviewed a state policeman, 25 years service, great big guy, and, uh, was thoroughly incredible to me. I heard he had a sighting. and It's very secret about it. told his wife. told her brother. It was another state policeman And came to me. So I called him. He lives in Bend. His name is um, Harris. So I called him and uh, told him what I was doing. And he said, I don't want to talk to you. He said, absolutely no comment at all. And I said, well, sir, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm, I'm really serious. You know, I'm, I don't laugh at this thing. And he said, all right. He said, call me back in a year. So I called him back a year later, and he just retired. He said, "Come and see me." But well, while he was in the state police, he didn't want to talk about it, so. so. he had a good sighting. So you says, says credibility as best as you can.
3: How do you think things would change if someone shot one tomorrow brought in the body? How do you
4: think what would change in our, I guess, in our world? Well we'd we believe it, of course, and science would believe it. Scientists would say, "Great, let's see it." And examine it, and then we would know for sure that they are there, there's, there's a few there, or there was one there. That could happen, but it doesn't mean that an army of people are going to descend on the Pacific Northwest and go looking for them, and even if they do, they're not going to find them. I mean, since World War II, there's 55 planes have crashed in the Pacific Northwest since the beginning of World War II, and 20 are believed to have gone into the sea, leaving hmm, about 30 that haven't been found. One was found in Mount Baker. The last few years been down thirty years. One was found in Idaho, it's been down thirty-five years. One was found to crash six miles from where I live, and it was there for a year before they found it. A plane is a huge mass of crashed metal, it's in one place, it's not moving, it's not gonna run away from you. And we can't find them. One plane was flying from Anchorage to Boise. It had forty two men, forty two young airmen on board. It crashed in BC, it's never been found. One crashed, I think it's eighteen years ago, which has a senator, Senator Hale Boggs, mm-hmm. and another an Alaskan representative. The families are still looking for that plane and they have a rough idea where it crashed in B C and they can't find it. So people say, you know, okay, well, where were these things hide? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. The Yeti story was amazing.
1: Yeah.
3: I've uh, never uh, heard that. I mean, I, I, mm. I, I knew bits pieces of the story. Mm-hmm. Really. I always wondered how he got it out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, a yeah, it spy, spy movie. <laughs> yeah,
4: totally spy movie. Yeah, the Stewart's are a great couple. Uh, they were friends for years and years. And then Gloria died, and then he died. Yeah. And a lovely couple. And how I met Tom Slick is interesting. I was I was in, um, in the Himalaya. I was in the country of Sikkim which is up between uh, Nepal and Bhutan. And it was evening time. And we were looking for a place to camp. It was very cold, misty. And I had three men with me. And we saw this spark of light away in the distance. And I said, what's that? And they said, that's the Darjeeling Himalayan mountaineering school. And they take students up there. So we hiked a night and, and hiked and came into this camp. And there was a bunch of Sherpas there. And I knew a couple of them. And uh, Tenzing Norgi was there. Tenzing who climbed Everest with, um, with Hilary, with Ed Hillary He was there, and I knew, I knew him from before So um, he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for the Yeti. So um, Tenzing said, um, um, there was a man in my house a few weeks ago, and uh, he's very interested in the Yeti expedition, and he left a piece of paper with my wife. So about three weeks later, I get back to Darjeeling, I go and see Mrs. Tenzing, and she has this little piece of paper. And on it is written, Tom Slick, Carol's the National Bank of Commerce. San Antonio, Texas. So I wrote to him and said, I hear you're looking for your instant Yeti. And, and that's how our communication started. A little spark of light in the mountains. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
3: I can't believe how long you were up looking for that Yeti.
4: That must have been miserable. Mm-hmm. No, it was great. It was, was it? it was exciting. It was a great privilege. and uh, uh, We had great people come and join us back and forth. Gerald Russell. We brought the first panda back to New York in the 20s with a woman called Ruth, Ruth Harkness, people like that. All, all kinds of people to come up and join us, spend a month, And, and um, we lived in caves a lot of the time because you can have a fire in a cave and keep warm. And you uh, can have a fire in a tent. The tents were cold and miserable, so we started living in caves. And um, the Himalaya has... No real caves, because geolog- geologically it's a very young range, but there'd be, it'd be enormous rocks with a big crack in them, and caves would be underneath, or there'd be leaning rocks. And that's where we spent a lot of time to get out of the weather. So, yeah. Up
1: in that area, did, what other life did you guys encounter? What Would you guys eat for food and that, that sort of thing?
4: Well, um, we, um, we used local food. Potatoes grow everywhere. The British introduced potatoes potatoes every sharp grows lots of potatoes. And then we had a couple of men the runners, and we they would run back down 30, 40 miles to lower elevations and pick up chickens, eggs, vegetables, fruit. And they're constantly doing that, supplying us wild lots of wild raspberries, wild strawberries up there. And um and then the animal life <coughs> is entirely dependent upon the, the elevation. And in the forests, um, there were leopard, um, lots of bear, black bear. Um, we saw wolves a couple of times. Uh, jackal, is the equivalent of the coyote here. Uh, Langa monkeys, the big grey monkeys, they go up to about 14,000. It's a great big monkey, weighs about 50 pounds. Lower down, the brown monkeys some deer, and a wild boar, quite high. And then the, the animals course phasing out as you go higher and higher, and eventually up at about 16,000 uh, little um, rodents called mouse hares, and they live in the rocks, and that's as high as animals go. We'd see birds higher than that. We'd see crows sometimes. There's a, a red-beak crow. and We'd see them up at eighteen, nineteen, twenty thousand. 20,000. And we were in the ten to fifteen thousand foot levels most of the time. That's where the forest is. Dense forests. You wouldn't believe it. Dense forest rhododendron forests, ferns, juniper. And as you get higher you get into dwarf dwarf forests, and then you get moss and you get lichen, and it fades out, at very high, sixteen, seventeen thousand. Wow. There's sound growth. And yeah. the Yeti <clears throat> and all the reports were in forests, not up in the snows. He was just called the snowman. There's nothing up there i like to eat. So all the reports we had were in forested areas. So,
3: How did you feel about Brian Sykes'
4: study saying that that yeti or that yeti hair is a bear? That's well, fascinating. And, uh, I met him. He came to stay with me uh, a couple of months ago. And I think he's doing incredible work. So you've got a couple of hairs. you got one from Bhutan, I think, and one from Nepal. And he classifies it as a um, prehistoric bear, prehistoric polar, polar bear maybe, and a, and a present-day bear. So, but not a yeti, not a primate. Yeah. So there may be um, an unknown species of bear in the bull. There may be, and I think there may be some expeditions to look for it. And so all we ever saw was black bear, was a big black bear with a white V on its chest, 200 pounds, 250 pounds. There's another bear in Tibet. There's a blue bear in Tibet. And then you could in also a brown bear. But the common, the two common bears in, in Nepal, in the jungles, is the sloth bear, a big shaggy creature. And up in the mountains, the black bear with, with the white feet. There's two species of bear there. Uh, quite harmless animals, quite shy. Yeah. What,
3: when was it that you stopped and you, with Sasquatch, and thought, you know, there's something to this? What made you put forth the time and effort into. Because uh, there had to have been a moment, because I know you uh, you haven't had a sighting, right? No, I'm not at a sighting. So no, what, for you to spend so much time on it, what was mm. it t- in your mind where you went, you know what, there's something to
4: this, there's something... Well, you're asking me like two questions there. One is, you know, what kept me going, the hope of finding one. That's what kept me going. I'm fascinated, even though I'm fascinated by it. I'd like, and I, I still hike and put cameras out, and I enjoy it. I find it exciting, the prospect of seeing one of these things, encountering one. Tom Slick's great dream was communication. If you could find one and communicate, but that was his great dream. And um, so that's what keeps me going, really. So, and I still enjoy it. So. Mm. As far as the SAS goes,
3: what what got you, what made you turn on that? Was it just the fascination of finding one?
4: Or there oh, had well, to been know, something to make you go, you know what,
3: there's something to this, I'm going to put my time and effort into this? Yeah, you know, I
4: think it. Um, when we first started in, in the 60s was meeting people who said they'd seen one, eyewitnesses and sitting down with them and uh, interviewing them and believing their stories. Not all of them, of course. Um many cases, it was imagination. People seeing cows, people seeing bears, people seeing stumps on the side of the road in a driving but I interviewed not thousands of people I maybe interviewed 150 in the altogether, that's all, that I thought were credible, and then another 50 that I thought were not credible. And their stories uh, convinced me that there's something there, that all those people, state policemen, deputy sheriffs, engineers, surveyors, loggers, two judges, a doctor, all kinds of people, I'm convinced saw a man in a fursuit, or an unknown primate. They did see something. I really believe that. Straight now, as you're telling the story, so I believe they saw something. And the possibility of man's first is pretty remote, I think. So, so I think they really. And that's that's that background. the historical background. We had a woman down there who worked for us, an Indian woman, Betty Betty Allen was her name, and she did a lot of digging, dug up stuff from 40, 50 years ago, hundred years ago. She was a newspaper woman. And that stuff is fascinating. So there is a background, I said. Didn't start in 1959, didn't start out. There's so lots of stuff from the 30s, the 20s, way back. That was convincing. And then the footprints we found, those were very convincing to me. And then along came the 67 film, which I think is real. And then since then, more sightings, more interviews.
3: It was an honor. Thank you so much for... Uh, oh,
4: my pleasure. Oh, absolutely.
3: It was an honor to meet you. Thank it was an honor to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, and thank you. Retna Mollis. One of the main speakers this year at Beachfoot. By day, he works as a professor and has a PhD in psychology. I'm Retna Mollis, and
0: I live in the Seattle area. And I've been doing Bigfoot stuff for 37 years. And I'm here at Beachfoot 2014.
3: He tells us about his fascination with the subject and how it began with his sighting as a child.
0: Uh, I was 10 years old. We had just moved from uh, Treasure Island, which is in the San Francisco area, to um, Whidbey Island, Whidbey Naval Air Station. My dad was a career Navy. And... We did that in 76, and by summer of 77 we were taking a ferry ride from Seattle up to Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island, near where John Bindernago lives. And, um, I was on the back of the ferry, on the observation deck, on the, what would be the starboard side, considering its direction of movement. And we were sitting, we were crossing through the Admiralty Inlet area, which is where the peninsula is here and we'd be out here and we're going up this way, up the Admiralty Inlet. And I was on that observation deck with, I don't know, 15, 20 other people. And I was looking actually out towards Port Townsend, and or Port Angeles. And um, someone says, what's that over there? So, of course, instinctively, we all turn to see where this person's pointing. And in the middle of the wake was this big black man swimming towards Wigby Island. So I would be going east. And uh, there were various comments. And is that a whale? No, it can't be a whale. It's got arms. And, yeah, the arms are pretty plainly visible from when we first saw it. And because as we kept traveling away from it. It was obviously getting smaller as so we kept swimming. And, of course, in the wake, it was quite... White water, it was a lot of white water, but that made him stand out even more because of the contrast of him being big and black and the white water. But, uh, somebody finally said, I think that's one of them Bigfoot things. I know what a Bigfoot is. I pretty much grew up in the desert. So, because before we, we only lived in San Francisco a very short time because my dad being in the Navy. But we spent most of my life either in like Southern California or Arizona and a little bit of Florida when I was younger. but So I never had any kind of knowledge of all of that. And when he said the word Bigfoot, I'm like, I didn't know what that was. And that's when I started reading about it. Matter of fact, the, some of the first books I started reading about were, were John Green's books. And that just got me started. And it wasn't until after I uh, got out of the Navy, I was living in Utah, that I really took it back up again to really start reading more and learning more. And that's when I started SIR Bigfoot Sasquatch Investigations and Research, which really didn't do much because in Utah there wasn't a lot of, nobody wanted to talk about it, nobody wanted to do anything about it. Um, so as far as I knew, maybe there wasn't Bigfoots in Utah. Well, now we know better. And um, then it was in '88 that I came back to Washington, and of course that's prime Bigfoot territory. And um, started doing it a little more seriously. And by the time we got into the early '90s. I started doing field experiments and uh, came up with the proximity experiment, which was very successful, and it just kind of progressed from there. SIR Bigfoot, after I uh, went back to school and I became a research psychologist and a professor, I decided, you know, I'm going to bring the whole science realm into this. And so we switched SIR Bigfoot, which was pretty much really defunct at that point anyway, but just switched it all over to Bigfootology because I wanted to use a name where it was very easily associated all around the world because you know there's a thousand names for bigfoot all around the world but nobody knows what those names are but everybody knows what the term bigfoot means so that's why i didn't use Sasquatch. that was you know or hominology or because most people don't know what the heck hominology is either like was that play music you know yeah let's get my banjo out so anyway um uh, so everybody can identify, whether they like the word or not, they can still identify what it is. And so that's what we did. I mean, the study of the Bigfoot phenomenon, the reason why I say phenomenon, is not just about the the, the creature itself and what it is and its behavior, but also about uh, the history of it and the psychology about it, what drives us, You know, the community itself, which is why Friday night I was talking about the community as a whole, social ramifications of, a bigfoot wall, because uh, it has transformed all of our lives, hasn't it? You know,
3: so, yeah. have you had any sightings since since you went that first one?
0: <sighs> okay, in '97, we were we went out to the Tulalip Indian Reservation in Marysville, which is just north of Everett, Washington, and um, my research partner at the time was Jerry Holman, and who was an old Adak Indian, Inuit and Indian, and he taught me a lot. Quite frankly, I forgot most of it. But anyway, he taught me a lot, and um, uh, he was a lot of fun to work with. He was 63 years old, and I was 30, and that boy could outrun me like I was nothing. He was, but he grew up around these things, and his sister was the caretaker of a quarry. Uh, and They don't use a quarry anymore. I was a caretaker there, and he was telling me that she had... Um, prior reports of them coming up and knocking on her trailer. You know, typical Bigfoot behavior, peeking in the windows, that type of thing. And it was a beautiful day, like today, sunny, you know, and warm. So my girlfriend at the time and her son, myself, and Jerry, we all went down to his sister's and um, paid her a visit. I did my basic interview with her. And she was telling me about all the different places she'd seen them around the quarry. So we decided to take a walk after that, and when we walked out, when you walked out of a trailer, and you, you know, I used to have all this stuff when, laid out on the internet so you actually see what I'm talking about, but when we walked out, the first start part we walked through to get to the quarry pond area was a patch of old growth with, with the canopy that, that you had to drive through, but we were just walking. And uh as we were walking through it, it wasn't very far, maybe 40, 50, 60 feet, somewhere in that range. And we got about halfway through, and I got that heavy, musky whiff. <sniffs> by now, you know, by that time, I was like, I've smelled that enough, that I'm like, I know what I'm smelling. And I'm like, well, this is promising. So, as usual, I went in the wrong direction. I went to, it would have been, I guess, the, the south side of the road into the, into the woods, and there was nothing in there. So... I turned around and walked across the road, which is again not very far, it's just a little single lane thing, and dirt road. And I walked in the other side, and it was one of the, and that, up to that point in time, I saw within 10, 15 feet of walking into the into the woods, was the biggest nesting area I've ever seen in my life. It was enough for like four or five creatures, it was massive. And it was quite rank, and um, well, well pressed down. And that was cool. I spent a few minutes in there checking it out, and I came back out and told them what i what I saw and I just pointed right to it because you can now that you know where it's at, you can actually see through the trees from the road where they are and so that was exciting and Jerry came back out with me, and we kept walking down and, and you go about another thirty forty fifty feet, and the road takes a hard turn because there's this this like garage here, and then next to the garage is this quarry pond, and at the back of the quarry pond was a little more like a marsh. And in the middle of this thing was this nine-foot-tall blackberry, raspberry, whatever type of bush. You know what I'm talking about. It makes this big, huge dome. And then on the edge of the quarry pond here was this line of trees, just like a thin line. And then you had the, the, the quarry wall out along here, and it tapers down to the forest all through there. And there's was up on the ridge, too, up on the line. Anyway, we get past that outbuilding. And we're just walking along where the quarry pond is. And all of a sudden, Jerry bends down and goes, Look at that! Just yells it out. And we all instinctively turn. And there she is, sitting next to this blackberry raspberry bush, whatever it is. I'm not a botanist. I just know it's one of those stickly berry bushes. And, uh, and she's sitting there. And she looks up. And it was, it was really, really graceful. She stood. She had breasts. That's how we knew it was a female. She didn't have any tackle downstairs, so she she stood up like it was just effortless and did one turn, and she stepped. And she was behind the bar. She was just gone that fast. But it was not like it was not like she was bolting. She was just Bing Bing Bing. It was just like that, real casual. And Jerry and I at that point ran around the south end of that quarry pond where that tree line was and got up to where she was, and the part where she was was not very wide, maybe about maybe 10 feet, if I remember right, between the dry land and the blackberry bush. And you could see where she was sitting because all the all the reeds were just, the, the lilies were just pressed down because there were lily pads. And then you can see where she stepped because those lily pads are now black spots, you know, as she walks up. Right. And when we got up to that point where we were at that blackberry bush, We could see, because the outbuilding now is here, we could see the back of the outbuilding, the blackberry bush and the tree and the forest here, and we saw her walk right up into the woods right there, which we discovered. I, I saw the road here, and I said, Jerry, you stay here, and I ran back, got my Jeep, drove around, and met him there, picked him up, and we saw why she went into the woods right there because there's actually trails that go up through there. And there was the one trail that was wide enough for me to drive my Jeep on. And so I broke out my sound equipment, and we're driving along. just I'm literally just creeping. And I had my sound equipment out, and it was just an amplified box. That's all it was with the earphones. And I could hear the snap, crackle, pop. And she, I could hear her breathing like, <laughs> just a freight train, real deep and real methodic. And at one point, um I told Jerry, I says, hold your breath, because I can't tell if this is us being overly excited or her. So we both held our breath, and it never stopped. Snap, crackle, <laughs> and we just so we just kept. This went on for it was over an hour. I don't remember exactly how long anymore, but it was definitely over an hour. And we just slowly kept creeping through this forest. And what I keep telling people today is, we got to, we lost her because she stopped. We stopped hearing the sound when we got to this clear cut area. We were still in the woods, but you could see through the tree line like maybe a hundred feet away. It was all clear cut out and so we really didn't know where we were at that point in time and we stayed there and stayed there and we just didn't see anything couldn't hear anything and uh, today if you know that area it's that area actually literally is the i-5 corridor and where the clear cutter area now sits a so walmart and cabela's and and a casino so that's why i keep telling people if you if you know what you're looking for and you're in the right areas you don't have to go far to see these things because they're all around us. you know and I'm, and I'm not one of these people that believes a bigfoot behind every tree either. I'm the one that usually gets people mad because I'm going, probably not. you know let's let's, let's look at the real stuff and forget about exaggerating all the silly stuff.
3: Brenan Mollis has been involved in Sasquatch research for many years. So I thought it was appropriate to ask him, what do you think Bigfoot is? It's alive. <laughs> it's bipedal. It's hairy.
0: And we learned that, that from all this study that we did that their hair is, if you see clumps of hair, that's not a Bigfoot hair. Bigfoot hair are single strands. So we got a lot of those samples in. I found a clump of hair. Oh, well, No, that's more like sheep. But Bigfoot hair is very human-like in terms of its, its single strands. It doesn't shed. It has to break off or be pulled off. And um, so what else do we know? Um, their genitalia is very similar to ours. And um, their facial features are very similar to ours. Um, what are they? We have no idea. And as, a, and as a scientist, I'll never give you a definite, because we still don't have that golden hair to tell it. That's why we did the DNA project, so we can determine exactly what they are. Oh uh, so what are they? They have to be closer to humans. Where are they fit in the genus of everything? I have no idea. And as a scientist, I'm not going to tell you. But because of that one point of information, this is where Grover and I started, you know, disagreeing was, I didn't believe they were gigantopithecus at that point. Well, where are they? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to find out, Grover. You know, stop yelling at me. <laughs> yeah, I, I miss him. He was a lot of fun.
3: Well thank you right now, appreciate it very much. Alright, I hope
2: all I did. the
1: stories
3: it was awesome, Are you
1: kidding oh, me? No, yeah, thank you
2: very
3: much.
1: Thank
2: you. It was yeah. really a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, awesome. yeah, thank it was you. A appreciate
3: you. What was my favorite moment from Beachfoot 2014? Here's where I'm supposed to say something like hanging out with Bob Gimlin. Meeting Peter Byrne and hanging out with him by the fire talking about different encounters. Hanging out with Ron Moorhead. Now my favorite moment from Beachfoot 2014 was hanging out with Shane Corson from Cryptologic Radio and my brother Woody. I laughed more on Saturday night than I have in the last two years. Beachfoot 2014 is about good times and good people. Until next time everyone, have a great night and thanks for listening.